Welcome to Miyagi Mornings Weekly Recap, a podcast version of our daily video series, Miyagi Mornings. Links to the video version of each segment can be found in the show notes for this episode. These recap episodes are part of the Survival Podcast feed, but are numbered independently as a special weekly edition of our show in all podcast feeds. How's revenge? Daniel-san, you look revenge that way. Start by digging to a grave. Walk right side, safe. Walk left side, safe. Walk middle, sooner or later, get the squish just like grape. Well, hello there, friends and neighbors. Welcome to episode 113 of Miyagi Mornings. Today's episode was spurred by a comment in one of my videos last week, and I'm not picking on the person that made the comment, because I get this excuse over and over and over and over and over. And it's basically, anytime I go out and I talk about, like, getting a little bit of land, uh, homesteading, hunting and fishing to augment your, uh, your food supply, foraging, it doesn't matter what it is. But how can I do it if I'm young and broke? Oh, cry me a damn river. You whiny-ass little bitches. I'm sorry. I wasn't going to be this way when I started doing this, but or when I decided to do this subject. But seriously, I mean, I think some of y'all need to hear this. I'm going to start out with a story. I'm going to start out with a story. And so that you understand, like, I'm not beating up on you just to beat up on you. This is a story about one of my best friends in the world, a man I served in the military with, who... uh Today, if he called me and said, I need you, I would, I would immediately drop everything I was doing and go be with him. So if I'll be this hard on him, yeah. It's not personal, right? So he lost a job, big freaking deal. The guy was incredibly marketable. I think he had a job two weeks later after this particular occurrence happened. And he acted like his life was over, as though he had just gotten like a terminal cancer diagnosis and gone bankrupt on the same day and found out his dog died. I mean, that's how, how destroyed this guy was over losing a job, which he needed to lose, by the way. And so I took him away for a week, and I, ha I just happened to be, the day that I got the call that he was all in, you know, down on himself, um, I just happened to be going that weekend for a long weekend up to my place in Arkansas at the time that I had it, time anyway, kind of a vacation place. And you can shoot guns and hang out in the woods and drink some beers and grill some steaks, and, you know, I figured this would be good for him. And it was like traveling with dadgone Eeyore from freaking Winnie the Pooh. I mean, it was just, by the time I got done with this long weekend, when I got home, I, I went and took a shower to get, like, the negative off me. That's how bad it was. I even did a show about it. I'll see if I can find it and put it in the video notes down here. Like, that's how bad it was. And I had to do a show about dealing with Eeyores after this thing. But along the way, and it was either on the way up or the way down, and it all is one giant negative cesspool to me in my memory now, he started describing the way that he really wanted to live. I want to go hunting and fish, and I want to have a little garden, you know, and everything could just be simple. And like, so he gets, finally, after I listen to all this shit, I'm like, dude, do you realize you just described the exact way that millions of broke rednecks live every day? Like, broker than broke. Like, they have way less than you, and they live exactly the way you're saying that you want to live right now, and you're claiming that money's why you can't do it. You do see where that doesn't make any sense. His response was something to the effect of, well, yeah, but what are you going to do? What are you going to do indeed? So let's talk about what this means and what this excuse is really all about. There's two sides to this excuse. There's an inability to budget 
do math and use logic. That's one side of it. And the other side of it is people don't really want what they say they want. So let's start with the inability to you know budget and use math and use logic and reason. So anybody out there today, unless you're living at home, in which case you could probably have a garden in your backyard at your parents' home until you get your own place, you're paying some money to live somewhere. Right? You're paying some money to live somewhere. So what you have to do then is figure out what you don't have that you do want the opportunity to do and how to make that money provide you with what you need to be able to pursue what you want. And most of you can. But what you'll find out when you when you do this exercise with people, because I've done it, well, you're going to have to move. I don't want to move. What do you mean you don't want to move? You just said you want to, well, I want to, I want to stay like right where I am, but I want a bigger place. Okay, so you don't want what you really said you wanted. Because like what my friend was saying he wanted was to live like a broke-ass redneck. They don't live in kind of, you know, upper-end urban places in Dallas, Texas, do they? Right? They live out in the sticks, which is where he said he wanted to live. But whenever it came down to it, he didn't really want to live out in the sticks. He didn't really want it. So either the problem is that the person just simply hasn't, they've already talked themselves out of the ability to do what they probably can do, which is simply to go through an exercise, figure out what you want, design the type of life you want to have, and then figure out how to get it on the income that you have. Okay? The more persistent problem here is that the people that say this don't really want it. What they really want is a lot more than they say that they want. You see what I'm saying, right? And they're like, well, see, I can't afford it. Okay, so then you have to fix the income side. Well, did you think there was going to be some magical beans I was going to give you and it would grow your ass a homestead? No, you, you need to fix the income side. But the income side a lot of times has an awful lot to do with the outgoing side. Today, I, I'm amazed at how many broke-ass young people, and that's the term they use for themselves, walk around with $1,000 iPhones and eat avocado toast made at coffee houses. Avocado toast at a coffee house costs about 10 times more than it would cost for you to take a piece of fucking bread and put it in your fucking toaster and pull it out and spread some freaking avocado on it, which as far as I understand, that is what avocado toast is. And I know some of you are like, I don't eat avocado toast. You know what? I guarantee you most people that call themselves broke-ass young people have a massive amount of outflowing money that is not on necessities. And that's okay. But what do you really want? Do you really want a homestead and you want all the things you say you want, or do you want to go hang out with your friends and go shopping? You see what I'm saying? There's choices in all of this. So we have to look at the income. We also have to look at the outgoing. And I know some of you are going to be like, you don't understand, dude, I'm actually broke. And guess what I was too? When I was young, I was I was broke. I didn't know what a cell phone was. They did exist. I'm not that old. Because I know some of you are like, okay, boomer, you need a freaking calendar if you're going to call me a boomer, okay? You need a calendar and you need to figure some shit out, like a, like a long-term, long-duration, multi-decade you know, calendar to figure out where boomers come from in that mix. I am not a boomer. I'm a Gen Xer. Maybe that's why I'm the asshole that I am, because we're the generation that raised ourselves. But I, I can tell you that The broker I was, the more freedom I seem to have to do all the shit that people say they want to do, but they think they need money to do. Hunting and fishing are not expensive. You don't need a $50,000 bass boat and $8,000 worth of tackle to go fishing. Broke-ass people go fishing every day. Find a place and go throw a line in the water. 
catch some fish, take them home and eat them, and cut your grocery bill. This None of this is hard. This is the truth, broke-ass young people. You will never, in your life, have more opportunity to get what you want in your life than you do this second, this moment, right now. In fact, five more seconds just went by, you now have less. And five more seconds will go by and you now have less. And five more seconds went by and you have less again. This is how this works. You either get with getting what you want or you let this excuse be what it is. A cancer in your life. That's all excuses are. They're life cancer. They destroy lifestyle design and the opportunity that comes along with it. Every time you make an excuse, well, I'm just broken young, you're saying to your mind, there is no way to solve this problem. And your mind says, okay. And it goes back to figuring out what, what, what type of, you know, whether the avocado toast tastes better if you cut the bread in half square or if you cut it on an angle. That's because you, you just told the mind, I don't need you to solve this problem. There is no solution to this problem. And then so then you see a guy like me and then you want me to do the work that your mind is supposed to do for you. I can't. I can't do it for you. That's why I'm a dick about this because I, I wish I could. I wish I could just like reach out of this screen right now to that little head and go click and make you go, oh, you mean all I have to do is figure my own shit out and I need to get with doing that now? Okay, I'll do that. This is why I want to, I wish I could do that. Notice there was no actual answer in that. It was just a change in thinking. I know that if you do that, you will succeed. How do I know that? Because everybody that ever did, unless like they got hit by a truck or something and died before they got an opportunity to finish it, did. I don't know anybody that ever sat down in their life and said, I'm going to make a plan to get myself to any reasonable goal, whatever it was, own a house, have a backyard, live in the woods, have more hunting and fishing in their life, be able to homestead, whatever. Anything is reasonable. Like, if you can write, sit down and write a, a plan, I'm gonna, here's how I'm going to be worth $11 billion, uh, you probably will fail. Doesn't mean you shouldn't do it if that's what you want. Because, you know, failing at like 10% of that would be still $1.1 billion. That's pretty good. But when it comes to reasonable things that other people do all the time, I've never seen anybody, ever, and I've seen some stupid, slow, moronic people achieve this type of success. Do you know why? Because they did it. You won't ever have a better chance to do this than you do right now if you're 18, 19, 21, 25. I wish the hell I could turn back the clock and be 24-year-old Jack Spierko again with 1% of the additional knowledge that I have now. If I could just take 1% of that knowledge back and people would be like, well, which knowledge? Like, that matters. I don't care. I don't care. 1% more applied across 25 more years. Well, shit. That would add up, wouldn't it? That's Think about it like compound interest power. We all learn about this. We should anyway. You know, you save your money and you earn interest on it. You keep adding to it, adding to it, adding to it. But the real magic happens like right before retirement as the balance has gotten so big and the interest keeps compounding and it starts, you know, your, your, your retirement grows like this and it's like the last five years it takes off like that if you actually do the work. That's how that extra 1% of effort, that 1% of knowledge, that learning one new thing every day and applying it to your life, that's exactly how it works. It works much faster 
than investing in mutual funds and the stock market. It works way faster. It works so much faster because you have an active input level going on there. And I'll tell you that whether or not you're going to be able to do this depends on how you'll answer this question I'm about to give you. The good news is if you answer it improperly and there's a wrong answer, you can change it. I want you to imagine yourself right now. You're walking down the street, driving in your car, hanging out somewhere, whatever. And whatever it is for you, like the car of your dreams, the girl of your dreams, the guy of your dreams, the house of your dreams, the clothes of your dreams, the piece of land of your dreams, whatever. For some reason, you see a person who has achieved that thing in their life for themselves. You're driving down and you look and you see this piece of land and you're like, If I could wave a wand and have a piece of land and a home, that's what I would have. Get yourself in that mindset so that you can answer this question, and I want you to answer it honestly. Whatever it is, the car, the 67 Fastback Mustang, whatever it is for you. All, everybody has something. Most people have multiple things. But the thing that would just be like, if you won... 50 million bucks in a lottery. You'd go buy the thing tomorrow. You wouldn't even think about it. Hey, can figure out, get a financial manager for the rest of this money by taking this million bucks and I'm doing this one thing I've always wanted. You see somebody that has that. How do you answer this question? When you see that, or you see anything approaching that, do you say, A, it must be nice, or do you say, B, good for them? It must be nice or good for them. You know, I grew up surrounded by people that I heard say must be nice all the time. It was a place just infested with poverty consciousness, a place called Pottsville, Pennsylvania. Uh, my, my father used to refer to the place as a white man's ghetto. He wasn't wrong. And man, all my uncles, their friends, the, the fathers of the kids I went to school with and stuff, you know, if we were, went fishing somewhere and we drove past this big, beautiful place, oh, it must be nice. Those men... Never got what they wanted in life. And if you emulate what they were doing, you won't either. Eventually, I grew up, joined the Army, tried to go back home. Really couldn't stay after I, I had been out of there for a while. I came here to Texas, and I started. I decided I wanted to have wealth in my life. I wanted to have success, I wanted to have money, and I wanted to have the things that money bought. And instead of dreaming about it or thinking about it or whatever, I decided I would research what made people wealthy and what made people able to get what they want. And I realized very quickly that, like, since I didn't really have any desire to go to college, that that's not the path I should take unless I could find out that all the people that had what I wanted went to college. And when I started looking at people that had what I wanted, some of them did and some of them didn't. Oh, okay, so that means I don't have to do a thing I don't want to do. Now, if I had found out, like, the only people that I could find anywhere that were successful, I would have bit the bullet and I would have figured out how to get through college. So I actually was willing to make the sacrifices to get what I wanted based on what other people that had what I wanted had done. I learned that it was aggression. It was a willingness to get things done. It was working when other people went home. It was taking any opportunity and every opportunity and always looking for the next opportunity. But I also realized the biggest thing in it was mindset. And along the way, I was fortunate to figure out poverty consciousness would keep me broke. And I'd never have what I wanted. And I realized having a negative view 
of, well, it must be nice, view of people that had more than I did was the most dangerous programming I could put into my mind. And I had to be 23, 24 years old, somewhere in that range, when I realized this. And at the time, I was making like 15 bucks an hour or something like that. And I was killing myself for it. I was working in underground construction. It was it was brutal. But I still just I made that decision that I would never look at somebody that had something I didn't in a negative light again. I would just think, good for them. And I would think, well, if they did it, then there's no reason that I can't do it. And my life changed. It didn't change overnight. It did, but it didn't. It took time for the compounding interest that we talked about to start to really give me what I wanted. But from 24 to 26, I went from making 15 bucks an hour to six figures. And it was that mental change that did it. So some of the things that people say that they want, it can be purchased with money. And if you, if you want it in a way that requires that, then you have to fix the income side. And you can do it. And a lot of people that claim that they're broke are making more money, even if you adjust for inflation, in their early 20s than I ever got close to. And somehow I had a pretty good life at that point. I really did. You know, you end up having a roommate or something like that to kind of make ends meet, or you live in a small place or whatever, but you do it. And you struggle. And I think that's a big part of this problem, is that so many of you don't think you're supposed to struggle. And it's not your fault in some ways. It's society's fault for teaching you that struggling was bad. I am so grateful that I had to struggle to get where I am because I think if I would have had success before I struggled, it would have destroyed my life. I have a nephew, and I hope he didn't take it wrong because he seemed like he might have a little bit, just a little bit. He and his wife have built an incredible business. He's in his early 40s. She's in her mid-30s. And they struggled so, so hard for so, so long. He had success in his career, but it also fell apart on him. But he kept working. And that, of course, put them into a place where they adjusted to their income, and then the income went away, and that made it even harder. And now, when I say they're successful, I mean they're more successful financially than I am. And good for them. But I told him recently we had a get-together at his new house. Beautiful place. I'm so glad this didn't happen to y'all too soon. Because if this would have happened to you when you were 24 or 25, it probably would have ruined your life. And it probably would have. It probably would have. Especially, you know, bringing two young teenage girls up and a little bit spoiled as it is. I mean, if it would have happened at 24 or 25. But that struggle. That struggle is, is the furnace. It's the forge that tempers the steel so that it's hard enough to do its job. If you want success in your life, then you're going to struggle to get it. The good news is it's actually not that hard. And the great news is it is the struggle that builds your life in such a way that when you get it, you figure out how to keep it. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another episode of Miyagi Mornings. I'll be back tomorrow with another one. Well, hello there, guys and gals. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 114. 
Today we're going to talk about cryptocurrency. I try to do at least one episode a week, or uh, limit to one episode a week on cryptocurrency, depending on how you look at it, I guess. Um, but there's a lot of scuttlebutt around Bitcoin right now. It's becoming a potential world currency. And one thing you have to remember is that whatever the media tells you, it tells you that to make a reaction. When you hear something on the news, when you read something writ by a mainstream media uh, posting or something like that, you can never read it the way that we used to look at news, which it wasn't even that back in the 70s, but it was a hell of a lot closer. But back in the 70s, we did kind of look at news as kind of like a, a dragnet, you know, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. And the media was still a propaganda machine in the 70s. It definitely was. If you go back and listen to some of the old media stuff from back in the 70s and early 80s, you'll see that. But it was a lot closer to, we're telling you what's going on. You have to literally not listen to anything the media says as though it's reporting of the facts. And you have to look at everything the media tells you through the lens of what do they want me to do and why would they want me to do it. And you also have to look at it this way as well. The media is a machine, a tool, that is used and driven by the elites. That's why you can have you know, 800 different local media stations reporting the exact same thing on the exact same day at the exact same time. Uh, so you'll have like these little like little feel-good segments, for instance. I can't remember the comedian. It was, a, it was a guy after Leno, I guess, on Tonight Show, would have these things where like they'd have all these like you know local Florida 12 and local Pennsylvania 15 or whatever, and they would all be like you know reading the exact same headline. Don't worry, be happy. Don't worry, be happy. Don't worry. That's why. That's why because the machine is just a tool. So you really have to look even through, yes, there's people that make independent choices inside the media that have their own goals and agendas, but the primary coming in from the macro on the top is the elites of the world. So why would they want you to think what they, they're, they're, they're doing? So the two things that have this really kind of at a fevered pitch now is one, Donald Trump, media's favorite. The media is addicted to Donald Trump. They said they wanted nothing more than Donald Trump to go away, but, man, they cannot let go. They they are hardcore. I mean, I've seen heroin addicts give up heroin easier than CNN and MSNBC can give up Donald Trump. It is unbelievable. So Trump recently made a comment. It was a single comment along the lines of, I don't like Bitcoin. It's a scam because it threatens the dollar. Well, it can't be both, Trump. Sorry. It can't be a scam and compete with the dollar for the global reserve currency. You see how you see there's a problem with that, right? So that has people all, well, if Trump says it does, even if he doesn't like it, then it might. And then El Salvador's president, I think it was El Salvador, came out and said he really wants to have Bitcoin be their national currency. Additionally, I think some other Central American nations, I believe it was Costa Rica and Panama, have expressed some interest in this as well. Now, again, this is all being filtered through, and you're being allowed to hear it, and it's being you know, amplified by the machine because they want a reaction from you. So what is that reaction? Well, to me, that reaction is that they want people to continue to be afraid of Bitcoin. Uh, and they want to believe, and they're, you know, the main reporting, if you go type right now in like Google News or something like that, put Bitcoin reserve currency, the main pushback you're going to hear is there's no threat. There's no threat by Bitcoin to the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency. They're like, just like the troops are lining up to defend the line. Now, based on everything I said, you might be thinking, well, what Jack's about to drop on us is, yeah, Bitcoin's going to become 
the global reserve currency, uh, displacing the dollar as such. No. No. And I'll tell you why. And it's probably not what anybody out there is thinking or certainly telling you right now. It's the same reason we have like 9,000 altcoins. The power of being able to print your own money is an irresistible power. Just back up for a second and think about it this way. How many crypto projects have you seen? That's a really cool project. Have you, if you've actually, if you're actually a thinking person, you also said, but why the hell do they need their own token or their own coin? If the project is really the thing, then why didn't you just use Litecoin for it? Or why didn't you, if you wanted privacy, why didn't you just use Monero or, you know, R or something like that? Why do you have to make a new coin? Because funding your enterprise and your pockets by printing your own money is an irresistible power. So no major nation that has true wealth that can extract from that wealth through the printing press is going to make a global reserve currency out of Bitcoin. That doesn't mean it won't become a global reserve. And that's exactly what I think it shall become as a global reserve. What's the difference? Right now, the reason you keep hearing people say it's gold 2.0, it's digital gold, is because gold is the world reserve. It is not the reserve currency, it is the world reserve. It is the wealth reserve of the world. It never changed, it has never changed, and the first thing in humanity's history since gold became the world wealth reserve, to threaten the status of gold is the wealth reserve is Bitcoin. What do I mean by this? Take a central bank of a major wealthy nation and tell me they do not have gold on the balance sheet. They all do, and significant amounts of it. And then all of the central banks are actually made up of the member banks, which are the consumer banks and the investment banks and the lending institutions that you deal with. They're really in charge of the economy through the Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank, etc. And they all have significant global reserves of gold on their balance sheets. All of them. So, you don't have to have the United States adopt Bitcoin, or China adopt Bitcoin, or Russia adopt Bitcoin, or Germany adopt Bitcoin, or El Salvador adopt Bitcoin as its currency for it to become a global wealth reserve used by nations and banks. You don't need to pass any laws. Federal Reserve Bank of the United States right now can write a check for $50 billion and buy $50 billion worth of Bitcoin tomorrow, and they're eating jack-diddly shit that anybody can do about it at all. And so can the European Central Bank. And so can all these central banks and what have you in, in South, South American countries or African countries or Asia like China or Japan or whatever. All these central banks have so much autonomy, they can pretty much buy anything they want. That's a lot easier than changing a law. And I think that what's being done right now is an attempt to suppress the value of Bitcoin in a very coordinated manner because, well, a lot of these folks are realizing that they're late to the party. And this is how this goes down. A central bank of a significant nation, probably more significant than El Salvador, not that El Salvador putting Bitcoin on the national balance sheet wouldn't be significant. It would be hugely significant. It wouldn't be that significant. But if you have uh, a Germany, 
right? Even though they have a European Central Bank, they still have individual banking institutions within Germany. They have a national balance sheet, et cetera. Just Germany were to put it on the balance sheet. Or if the EU, the EU Central Bank, were to put it on the balance sheet, or the Chinese were to put it on their, their reserve, uh, in, uh, put it on as a reserve in their balance sheet, or the Russians or the Chinese. See, any one of them that does it, they'll all do it. They'll all do it. It doesn't even have to actually happen. All it has to do is be plausible. If credible reports come out, for instance, that Vladimir Putin is putting Bitcoin on Russia's balance sheet, the EU bank and the American central bank will immediately follow. And once that happens, the Chinese jump in and the Japanese jump in and the Asian Pacific uh, nations jump in and Central America, South American nations jump in and everybody puts it on the balance sheet. And it immediately becomes a global reserve of wealth, which in many ways it already is. It's just not being used by these nation states yet as such. And I'll add to this, you don't even know that. You don't even know that. If you believe that your government is actually obligated to tell you everything that they're actually holding uh, as a reserve of wealth, then, then you probably listen to too much TV set talk, talk and not enough YouTube of alternative media people like myself. I'm sorry. If you believe this, you just, I don't even know what to say. To a person that really thinks, well, you know, we know everything the Federal Reserve is holding because we can audit their balance Have you never heard of the Audit the Fed Act? Do you think that there's a reason for it? Do you think Ron Paul just thought it sounded cute? Or do you think that maybe there might be some things that they're doing beyond just maybe the money that you see is not all the money that there is. There's just other things going on. Do you think the most powerful and most wealthy people in the world might do some, do some things and not really give a shit whether you like it or not and might not disclose it to you and might do those things in their own self-interest? Now, for those of you that are like, I don't know that, you know, The American, you know, Central Bank, the Federal Reserve, uh, Canada's Fed, or uh, Chinese Central Bank, or EU Central Bank would do this. So they would actually buy this currency. I would ask you, why not? Why wouldn't they? It doesn't cost them anything. It doesn't cost them any money at all. How much Bitcoin would you buy right now if I gave you a blank check for a loan you never had to repay? Let me say it again. I want you to really think about this. How much Bitcoin would you buy right now if I handed you a blank check and said you can you, you fill that check out, buy as much Bitcoin as you want, do whatever you want with it. You never have to pay me back. But when you write the number on that check, that's the number you get. You write a million dollars, you get a million dollars. You write a billion dollars, you get a billion dollars. You want a hundred million? Put it on there. You can spend as much money as you want, and you never have to pay it back. Because you do understand that's how fractional reserve banking works, right? They never pay the money back, especially at the top level. They can literally write a check that draws against nothing and has no money due back. So why wouldn't they? And what you'll say, and if you're a thinking person, you're, you're on the right track, is because they don't want Bitcoin to succeed. Have you ever heard the term... That horse has left the barn before. There's a point where even if you're diametrically opposed to a thing, you accept the thing for what the thing is. And there's a lot of stuff going on right now around this that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense as well. 
So if you're watching this on Odyssey or YouTube, instead of the podcast recap, it's Tuesday the 8th. And today's survival podcast will be a roundtable show. This is my podcast. This is what you're looking at right now if you're watching the video. is not my podcast. A lot of people get confused about that for some reason. My podcast is audio. It goes out in Stitcher and iTunes and all that good stuff. It's usually about an hour to an hour and a half every day. Today we're going to do a roundtable discussion. And I'm going to break down some other things that are going on in the cryptocurrency world that I also believe are designed to suppress the price of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin specifically. Now, if you suppress the price of Bitcoin all the way down to $15,000, more than half away from where it is right now, it doesn't actually hurt Bitcoin. Now, it's hard for you to get your head around. Everybody wants a Lambo in the moon and whatever. You're talking about a currency that was created about 11 years ago that was called completely and totally worthless when it was, and, and was called that over and over and over again that has been pronounced dead so many times. There's actually a thing called the Bitcoin Obituaries at 99bitcoins.com. I'll put a link in the video notes. And you go read it in hundreds and hundreds of times that people who were way more important than me in the global world, right, you know, have come out and said Bitcoin is dead, including, like, heads of central banks, Federal Reserve chairman, uh, bigwigs in Goldman Sachs, etc., pronounced it dead and gone. When it was, you know, $100, $300, $600, $1,000. that has been in this a while knows that Bitcoin's been through every mountain. Gox falling apart, Silk Road. Like, the, it, it is not that big a deal Unless you took your life savings, put it in there, and you need the money back next week if Bitcoin goes fifteen grand, it doesn't help get rid of Bitcoin. It actually brings more people over time after the shock wears off into Bitcoin because, gee, it's like time to buy in again. Who does it benefit? This is the question we always have to ask ourselves. If you can write that giant check, but there is some limit on. Bigger. The reason I told you any number you want, because their limit's bigger than the number that goes in most people's heads. Because most people aren't sociopaths, and they actually realize that money represents power, and too much power is bad. So most people probably have a number like, even at a billion dollars, people start to feel a little bit uncomfortable with that much power if they're not sociopaths. And I know you're out there, I'll get a hundred billion dollars, I don't give a shit. Yeah, because it's not real. But if it, you are a sociopath, If your goal is to control society, and if you realize that Bitcoin has an inherently limited supply, right? It is hard capped. There is only so much. Right now, if the central bank goes out and tries to buy all the Bitcoin on the market, they will literally push Bitcoin to like a million dollars in days. That's how fundamentally limited the supply is. And once we hit that final Bitcoin BMI, there is no more. We had a 21 million. And there's probably more like 18 million Bitcoin that will ever be available because of how much has been lost. And there's probably like at least $10 million that is not getting sold no matter what. Or 10 million Bitcoin, they're not getting sold no matter what. So you got about 8 million Bitcoins that at any price are even up for grabs. Because the wealthiest of the wealthy have snapped to, if I don't ever sell it, I don't ever pay taxes on it, and there's ways to get cash flow from it without selling it. I can loan it, and I'll pay tax on the interest that I get on the loan, but 
I'm only paying it on that. I'm not paying on the fundamental underlying uh, value. Or I can actually borrow against it and use the next loan to repay the first loan once I have a certain amount of money. So the people that are running that game, they're not selling. People like, if, if you've been in like me since 2014, you're not selling. Do you understand the issue there? So the check isn't limited in how much they can write it for. The quantity that can be acquired with the check is where the limit is. So what do you do? You suppress the price. You get your boy Elon to go buy a bunch of it, but once he buys a bunch of it, you get him to talk, start talking nonsense about energy usage. You get your dumbass, uh, you know, uh, completely co-opted Mark Cuban to start talking about Dogecoin, and then you get your morons on Fox News calling it Dogecoin. They don't know what the hell they're talking about. They can't even pronounce it right. But all of a sudden, it's like, well, you should be looking at Dogecoin, right? Oh, okay, yeah, sure. Billions and billions of new ones every year. That's the place to go, right? You suppress this. You have Russian hackers get millions of dollars for the colonial pipeline, and then the FBI magically figures out the seed phrase and gets it back. They're such badass hackers, man. They're like they're like super hackers, man. They wear a dark hood. They live in a basement in Russia, right under Putin's pool, man. And they're like the most sophisticated hackers ever. And they let their seed phrase get known by the FBI. And they got the money, and they had it in a wallet address. And they left it all, almost all of it in one address. They didn't move it. They didn't take any countermeasures with it. They just let it sit there. And the FBI magically farted out a 13-word seed phrase and got it back. <laughs> okay, sure. Okay, sure. Tune into the podcast today to find out more about that, to find out how ransomware attacks work. But this is this is my prediction. Bitcoin will probably get pushed down further before it goes up, and every time it goes down, I'll buy some more. Bitcoin will never be the global reserve currency. It will be the global wealth reserve held by every major institution in the world. And if you were those people and you knew this, you'd want as much of it as you could get and you'd use any tools and leverage you could to push negative pressure on the price so that you could buy it. Force out the weak hands. Take the whole table. That's the plan. I'll catch up to you tomorrow with another one. Well, hello, guys and gals out there in interwebs land. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 115. Uh, today we are going to talk about the importance of struggle in our lives. We're kind of picking up um, where we left off with Monday's episode, which was how I'm young and broke is a terrible excuse for not homesteading. It's also a terrible excuse for just about anything that she's for and it is used for almost everything that people make excuses for. Um, I'm not going to kick young people around again today at all. This, this one's for everybody. But I will say to those that did, there were a few people that were a little bit upset with that one. Um, you don't know what it's like to be young and broke. I absolutely do because I used to be that. We're going to talk about that today a bit. Um, however, I, I would say um, get off the excuses and get with the plan if you're young and broke of building wealth in your life. Otherwise eventually you'll get to be old and broke, and that's even worse. Anyway, let's talk about struggle. I said something in that episode to the effect of that struggling is the forge that tempers us as steel so that we're strong enough 
that we can survive being successful. And, and I wondered how many people really understood what I meant by that. I'm going to put it to you this way. I was a broke-ass poor kid from the coal region of Pennsylvania. I grew up in a broken, just, I mean, there is as dysfunctional as sitcoms families have become, they're the beaver cleavers of, of the world compared to my family. I'll just leave it at that. Um, one of my first real jobs, like where you get a paycheck and the government takes their share and all, was scrubbing the kill floor of a turkey, uh, turkey uh, slaughterhouse, basically. It was a turkey farm that did their own processing. And, I mean, like, I was hired as seasonal work at, like, Thanksgiving, Christmas time, where, you know, they're going full, full, you know, balls to the wall every day. And basically, I worked about four hours very late every night after the shift ended of the slaughter shift and scrubbed all the equipment, the floors, these troughs, the heads were in. I had to hose the. It was gross and it sucked. And uh, I made about $4.50 an hour doing that. I was in the Army. After I got out of the Army, my first job, I packed boxes in a warehouse in Texas, uh, routinely 115 degrees. And uh, was judged every day on, did you pack enough? And if you didn't pack enough, you're going to get fired. You're making $5.50 an hour. And uh, there's a lot of other stuff that I won't bore you with, but I'm grateful for every bit of that. I'm grateful that I lived in a tent in Honduras, in one of the most poor places on the planet, for six months with seven other stinking men with no air conditioning where it was routinely over 100 degrees. I'm grateful for all of it. And I'll tell you why. Because I also look back at, like, me when I was a 19-year-old dumbass kid in the military jumping out of airplanes and doing other stupid shit. You know, at least the airplane thing, there was uh, guidance and training and safety was of paramount importance. And no one's died jumping out of an airplane in a non-combat situation for a very long time. It's actually a lot of injuries, but it's, it's relatively safe when it comes to not dying, uh, considering how many people do it all the time. Um, but, you know, there was other stupid shit like standing in the back of a Ford Ranger pickup truck doing over 100 miles an hour going across the Bridge of Americas over the Panama Canal with a bottle of Jack Daniels passing it between two other guys. That's, that's, that's stupid. And I look at a lot of the other dumb shit that I did back then and I think to myself, what would have happened to you had, let's say, you got out of the Army at 21 went and bought a lottery ticket, a Powerball, and hit it for like $100 million bucks. Or you just somehow fell into a really high-paying job very early and young in life and, and what have you. And, you know, you could have all the, every, everything you want as soon as you wanted it when you were that guy. And, and here's my, my four best guesses. I'd be dead because the dumb shit I did back then, if you had given me the power of money to go with it, eventually I'd have killed myself. That's one. Um, there's also a very good chance I would have ended up in prison or at least in and out of jail with a really ruined life. Very good chance of that. Um, had I not killed myself, there's also an equally good chance that I would have like lived the rest of my life, you know, steering a wheelchair with my mouth with a little stick or something like that and ended up crippled, uh, injured for life. And probably the best outcome that could have come from it, because at least you can recover from this, I would have pissed it all away and ended up broke again. And I know not everybody maybe was as screwed up as I was back then, but I do know that almost every person that I've ever seen come into a windfall of money, especially when young, destroys their life in some way with it. And it's because we're not ready for it yet. 
And I'm not picking on young people here at all. In fact, I'm, I'm actually more picking on parents today. So now, now you're like, that guy's like all you, you know, the young and millennials and then whatever the generation after millennials is now, why or whatever. Like, um, you're thinking, that guy's a dick. Well, now you're going to be like, oh, he's all right, man. He's beating up on my parents. Maybe when you hear why I'm beating up on your parents, you won't be so happy about it, though. Parents make a huge mistake with this. Um, it's known as single parent syndrome. Single dads do it. Single moms do it. There's this idea that since you couldn't give your kid the life that society's told you you're supposed to give them, which is mom and dad leave it to Beaverland, uh, soccer games every weekend, whatever, that since you had to you know, split up and now they have to deal with a split family, that uh, you need to compensate for that by making sure they're never uncomfortable. This is like the worst thing in the world you can do to your children. This is the worst thing you can do to your children. I'm going to see if I can find it, but there was a video I listened to one time. It was a rabbi, and he was talking about if humans, if lobsters were like humans, lobsters would never grow. And here was his reasoning, that we've been convinced that we should never feel discomfort or suffer or do without in our society today. And that if we are experiencing any of that, we should remedy as quickly as possible with any means necessary. So lobsters, as they grow, they actually outgrow their shell, and it's very uncomfortable at that point. And eventually they get to a point where that shell is shed, and it hurts like hell, apparently, for a lobster to, to have this experience. And then they're incredibly vulnerable. Like if another lobster finds them, since they don't have a hard shell, it'll just eat them. And like anything else that eats lobsters... Uh, we'll eat the lobster, you know, without the shell really, really fast because it's easy, right? Soft shell lobster. Yum. Sounds good. Uh, so then it has to go and hole up for a while by itself, kind of like a meditative state sort of, and wait for the shell to harden, and then it can go back to being a lobster. But the only way that it can grow is for it to go through that process, where if lobsters were like humans – As soon as they felt uncomfortable, they would go to a doctor or a psychologist or something, and it would give them a pill so they would stop growing and stop being uncomfortable, and then they would never have to go through that process, but they would never grow. And I feel that when we take away someone's right to go through struggles, we deny them the growth. It doesn't mean that I won't help people, but I've, I've learned over the years the hard way that if I help too much, I end up hurting. I've, I've paid off debts of family members. I mean, written a check, paid in full, boom, and watched their life get worse. Because I didn't go through, um, you know, a mental exercise of let's help a little bit so that there's a step. And then let's see what they do with the step. And then let's see what they do next. And then I'll help along the way as long as I see progress. That's where I'm at with this now. And I would do that even with my own son. I mean, I've talked like this before, and I've had people ask, like, so if your son was going to be homeless, would you let him be homeless? Well, it depends on how he got there, but probably not. I also probably wouldn't have him live at home. I think that would be a terrible idea. So I'd probably, and now this is because I have the means to do it, I would find him a place as cheap as I could to live, and I'd pay rent for him for a couple months or three months, whatever it took, depending on what's going on. There's always a depends. But I would expect progress, and then, that me covering it would then have to transition at a known time to him covering half, and then eventually, you know, I need to see progress, and I would need to see a plan, and I would need to see if I'm going to keep paying half for, like, let's say a full year, like, what are you doing with the other money? If you're saving it up so you can improve your life and you have a plan, you can show me that and you can demonstrate that to me, then I'll keep doing it. But if I see a lack of progress, I'll pull the plug, and yes, if he's homeless, he's homeless. 
And people would say, well, oh my God. Well, clearly, providing the assistance isn't working. So when something isn't working, how quickly should you stop doing it? And the answer is as soon as possible. Right. So we have to, if we're going to help people who are struggling, we don't take away their struggle. We give them a step along the way, and then we see how they progress with it. And so many people don't do this. So many parents today, Gen X and boomers, uh, grandparents get involved a lot too with stuff like this, sometimes very detrimental, because the parent's trying to do their job, and the grandparent gets involved and takes away the struggle. That's even worse. And I've seen that with close personal friends, and I've seen it be very detrimental to that parent's relationship with their children and then that parent's relationship with their parents. It's bad all around. You, you have to let people struggle. If you don't let them struggle, then they don't earn what they have, and then they don't appreciate it. This is another example of, of the same principle in a totally different way. I've tried to help people by forming partnerships and companies with them. And I'll usually, like, if I'm going to form a partnership with a single individual, then I will give them straight out of the gate half the company. I've even done it where I've given a, a person, like, I'll promote it, you build it, I'll take 10% of the company. I'll front the money that we need to get it off the ground. I'll, and I'll give you, you know, website hosting. And I'm there as a consultant. You can call me and ask me, like, and when I was, I'll got to tell you what, for all my stupidity, when I was like 20 years old, 21 years old, if you gave me an opportunity like that, I would have went for it tooth and nail, and you'd have had to blow me out of it with dynamite to get me out of there. But I've watched people piss that opportunity away. And I realized what I should have done to give them the best chance of success is said, I'll pay you X dollars to do X things. And if you do all those things and you do them well and you get this off the ground, I'll give you 5% of the company at that time. And I'll give you a contract saying that. And then we will revisit it and I will give you new milestones. And my goal is to end up with you as a 50-50 partner. But you're going to have to earn equity. Do you know what? Some of the people that failed may have succeeded had I done that. Because I took away the struggle. Since, since they didn't have to do anything to get the opportunity other than sell me on their ability to do it, they didn't value it. My first car was a $300 car. I got it by pulling copper out of scrap uh, fan motors for old coal mines. This stuff had been laid around since the 30s. It was hard work. I wanted a car. I knew I was turning 16. I knew nobody was going to give me a car. I hiked up this mountain to this old mine shack every day that summer. And I sat down with a big set of uh, uh, shears and cut the sides off one side of the copper and then took pliers and pulled it out the other side. Copper was about 45 cents a pound back then. So saving up $300, plus even though I was almost completely on my own at that point, I still needed a parent's signature to buy a car. You can't just go buy a car when you're 16. So my old man's like, well, you have to have the money for the car. You have to have the money for six months of insurance, and you have to have where I think you can go at least two months without needing to buy gas. You have to have that much money. And all in it was about $1,000 that I had to earn with no real job because I couldn't get to a real job because I didn't have a car. I don't want that to ever be taken out of my life. You know what, though? I took care of that car. It was a piece of shit, but I took care of it. I, I vacuumed it. I mean, I took care of that car. Because it mattered to me. I got my son a pickup truck when he was 16 years old. Just went out and bought it for him. Really nice truck. I mean, it wasn't brand new or nothing, but I mean, it was like $7,000 truck. He made sure it was in this 
color of his favorite football team, Philadelphia Eagles. Got him all kinds of Eagles shit to go on it. He ran it in the ground. He's a good kid. Better kid than I was. But he didn't work for it. Struggle is the furnace of fire that tempers us in the world. And we have become a microwave society. We've lost the very thing that's made us a great nation. And that was the ability to struggle and know that it would pay off on the other end. We've been convinced struggling means getting student loans and going to college and spending half of your time complaining about other people and claiming that you're a victim. That's what we've been taught struggle. That's not struggle. The kind of shit I'm talking about, working your fingers till they bleed to buy your first car, that's struggle. And when we lose that, friends, we lose something that's so valuable to becoming the men and women we need to be to stand up in a world where everything is being turned against you. The people that the woke crowd thinks are their friends, they're not your friends. They're not your friends. There's a term for these mobs that are being turned here and turned there and used to advance an agenda that the elite used to describe you. This is not my term for you. This is what the elite that you think are your friends describe you as. Useful idiots. Because all while you think you're getting something done for yourself, you're getting it done for them, and you're going against your own best interest. Struggle is a gift. It's a gift. And it is a microwave society that's destroyed it. Everything's too easy today. When I was a little kid, I mean a little kid, I remember one time I was dropped off with my grandmother. She was working as a waitress at a diner. And uh, I was waiting for it to close, and I was going to go home with her and spend the night at her house. She says to me, would you like a piece of pie? I'm like, yeah. And they have those little spinny things with the pie in there. And I know that pie is ice cold. She said, well, what kind do you want? I said, well, apple. She goes, do you want it hot? I said, sure. So she says, okay. I said, well, how long will it take? Because I know it's about to close, and I want to be done with my pie and get the hell out of there. And go home and sit and count her tips that were mostly in quarters, dimes, and nickels with her. She struggled, too. And uh, she says, oh, just a couple seconds. And I'm smart enough as a kid to know adults never mean what they say. But I'm like, all right, sure. I figured I can go throw it in the oven. She turns around, goes and does something. Well, I really ain't paying attention. I was like eight, you know. About 30, 40 seconds later, she puts this pie in front of me, and I stick a fork in it, and steam comes out of it. And I'm like, Wow! How did you do that? She said, it's called a microwave. Now, there were microwaves around. They were not that uncommon. This is early 80s. Early 80s or very late 70s, 79, 80, 81, somewhere in that range. And, uh, But I'd never seen one. I'd never seen a microwave in my life. I didn't know what it was, and I was amazed by it. You think an eight-year-old kid today is amazed by that? And that's good that we have these advances in technology and that... The economy of scale makes them affordable and everybody can have them. But what we lose if we embrace that too much is the understanding that things that are worth having are worth working for. And a lot of what we've convinced is working isn't working. Spending time at a place does not equal work. Learning and memorizing French literature is not really work toward the progress of your life unless it involves French literature. If you're going to be a French literature teacher, God bless you. But don't confuse the fact that you got an A in French literature 
but your degree is in computer programming with actually having meaning in your life. It doesn't. What I want to know if I hire you and you're a computer programmer is can you do the shit that I need done and can you do it so well that I'm going to be like, well, I wish we could do this. You're like, I got that shit. Now we got some. Now we're having that conversation about, well, if you can do all these things, a year from now maybe we can make you a partner in the company, get you 2%, 3% of the company. And some of you go, boy, that ain't that much. <laughs> yeah, you'll never have shit. If that was your first thought, that's not very much. Well, you, you won't have anything. It's, it's working towards goals over time. And it's embracing the struggle. That doesn't mean settling for it. See, there's a difference between settling for mediocrity, settling and being like, it's okay that I'm miserable, it's okay that I'm broke, etc. That's one thing. That's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm talking about struggle. And struggle means that we are working to be a little better today than we were yesterday. And as long as there's progress... We're satisfied for that day. So tomorrow when we wake up, we do it again. And tomorrow when we wake up, we do it again. And tomorrow when we wake up, we do it again. And tomorrow when we wake up, we see how it works. But what people want to do is work really hard for a day or two and have an immediate result. And it doesn't work that way. The struggle is incremental and the results are incremental. The good news is results are very slow in the beginning when they're real and when they're earned. And there is a point where they go from incremental to exponential. And that's why you look at people and you think they had overnight success. That's why people look at what I've done with Survival Podcast. And if you've watched it for long enough or actually listened to it for long enough, you know that I started this all the way back in 2008. And by 2009, it was a screaming success. I said, well, that's quick, especially since I started it in the middle of 2008, six months into it. I didn't go full-time for another year, but I honestly could have in six months. The reason I didn't is I had commitments to my business partners in the main business that I was running for them. And at that point, we started discussing my exit, and I was going to do it in six months. And I was asked at the end of that six months, could I stay for six more? And I agreed to do so. So that looks very quick, doesn't it? Yeah. Don't think that the like 20 years leading up to it isn't why I was successful doing it. Don't think paying my dues. Don't think driving my truck and sleeping in the back of it. Don't think speaking at any public speaking event I could get into so that I could perfect my craft wasn't part of that. What looked like an overnight success, what looked like six months to success, was 20 years. And some of those 20 years were really great. Some of them were really hard. And there was a point in doing it. One day I turned to my wife, and I was working full-time. And when I say full-time, I'm like 60, 70 hours in this business with my partners. And I was putting in another four to six hours a day for this show and sleeping. That was pretty much what I did for those first six months of that overnight success. And I remember my wife was like, you're never here. This is worse than when you weren't doing it. And I said, give me six more months. Just like my partners had asked for from me. I'd asked her, I said, give me six more months. It'll all be worth it. And she did. I wouldn't ever give up that struggle. I wouldn't ever give it up because I wouldn't value and cherish what I have today. And I wouldn't have it without the struggle. Don't be afraid of the struggle. Embrace it and power through it and stop expecting somebody to fix it. Because I'm going to be honest with you folks. Very honest. The worst thing in the world that could ever happen to you is to someone reach in and fix it before you're done earning it. It'll ruin your life. Just look at what happens 
to people that win the lottery about five years down the row on average. This is not an opinion. This is fact. Most of them end up with their lives destroyed and with less money than they started out with. There's a reason. There's value in the struggle. It is the forge that tempers the steel that is us so that we're strong enough for our success. Take care, guys. We'll be back tomorrow with one more for the week. Well, hello there, guys and gals. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 116. 116, right? Yeah. Um, for those of watching the video versus listening to the recap podcast, um, I'm wearing a perfect shirt for today's subject. We're going to talk about alternative social media. And you can see my shirt is in the multicolor of the Google logo, but it says Gulag, and the A is the combat cock. That, of course, means this shirt comes to me courtesy of John Willis at SOE Tactical Gear. You want one like this, get over to John's site, and you can get a shirt like this. And He's got a lot of great gear, but he's got a lot of cool shirts, too. In fact, most of the shirts you see me wearing in these episodes come from John's kindness. Uh, he's been really good to me uh, since the very beginning of TSP, and I just want to throw a shout-out for him today. Because uh, he's using a lot of these alternative platforms that I'm going to talk about as well today. And uh, he is, I've, I've tried to buy things from him, and he's refunded my money and shipped them to me. And every once in a while, I just get a box of awesome shit from John. So just thanks, John. Anyway, so I got a question, ironically, on MeWe about how effective has, have, has my efforts in alternative social media really been. Some of you are watching this on YouTube, and if you're just a YouTube subscriber and you don't really pay attention to my podcast or anything... You may not know this, but I have pretty much abandoned every form of what you would call, I guess, legacy is what I call them. People call them mainstream uh, social media. So Facebook and Twitter are in the trash can. Occasionally I do a drive-by on Facebook trying to get old Zuckercock over there to ban me. He hasn't done so yet, though I've been... I've got like uh, up to a 30-day jail sentence on Facebook. I didn't even know it until like there was only two days left because I spent a little time there now. But I put all my effort into a variety of alternatives. And the primary ones that I'm going to go over with today and my experience with them so far have been using Odyssey for video. Many of you watch me there. Thank you for that. Uh, MeWe, Float, Gab, Telegram, which I have both a channel and a group on, um, Discord, and Parler. And... Uh, I'm going to give you kind of the good and the bad and some advice if you want to use these in your efforts as well. Let's start off with Odyssey. I love Odyssey. I think Odyssey is one, and it's O-D-Y-S-E-E -E for those that are not familiar with it. Odyssey is one of the best alternative sites out there. Of course, it's a video content site. Uh, you can also upload things like MP3s as well as documents, but it's primarily a video site. It works a lot like YouTube. I actually think it is cooler. It has better functions. And if you are a YouTube creator and you have, you know, I think it's a thousand subs or something like that, uh, of any any channel of any meaningful size with, with relevant new, you know, like updated content, so it's not like sitting there with videos that are like five years old or something only on it. If you set up an Odyssey account, you can import all your YouTube videos. And from that point forward, every time you upload to YouTube, it will also go to Odyssey. And that's pretty cool. Odyssey uh, uses the LBC token, uh, or coin, I should say, LBC coin. It's built on the Bitcoin protocol. Uh, it's bas basically a Bitcoin fork, even though it doesn't compete with Bitcoin in that way that you usually think of the word. Uh, I think it's valued at about like 11 cents or something like that per LBC coin. And uh, I get tipped in LBC at Odyssey, and you can too, and it's great. And right now, I make almost as much money on Odyssey in cryptocurrency 
as I make on YouTube. Now, I make a significant amount of that because of my influence with referrals. So head-to-head, I'm going to say that Odyssey, I'm not making as much on Odyssey just from pure content uh, as YouTube, but I have like 10% of the followers on Odyssey that I do on YouTube. So I'm making almost the same in in direct revenue uh, versus uh, revenue through advertisements on YouTube. Uh, Almost the same with 10% of the uh, subscribers. Additionally, I would say my views on Odyssey are about a third of what my views on YouTube are. So if I get 1,000 views on YouTube, I will get about 300 views on Odyssey, which doesn't sound good until you realize, well... Again, I have about 10% the number of followers, so I get better engagement, I get better revenue per user, um, and I get a better all better overall experience interacting with my uh, listeners. YouTube is still much more active. I'm not giving up my YouTube channel like I got rid of Twitter and Facebook, frankly because YouTube works uh, and it makes me money, and because it is the easiest way to get my content onto Odyssey as well. So by putting it on one site, it ends up immediately on two. So ease of use. And I get really good engagement on YouTube. I have to say, uh, while I think YouTube does suppress my view count uh, by suppressing my audience somewhat, I think it's ridiculous that a guy with over 50,000 subscribers puts a video up on YouTube and gets 1,000 views. That, that I'm sorry, that doesn't track well with me. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, if you were actually reaching your subscriber base. I, I, I just don't buy it. Um, however, it does pay well. It pays fairly well, and I'm not giving up the money. So I would say if you're a YouTube creator, you should also be an Odyssey creator. I, I'm not going to abandon one for that. MeWe. MeWe is the site that I do the best on as far as when I put something up, the number of likes, comments, and shares. Out of all the alternatives, if you want to call them that, I'm going to call it new social media. I don't think it's an alternative anymore. I think if you are a online personality, you should be building your presence on MeWe. I'm going to say absolutely this is something you should do. It, I, I hear from people say, it sucks compared to Facebook. It works almost exactly like Facebook, except it has some additional features that might confuse you until you learn how to use them, and then they're like more badass. The only thing that really sucks on MeWe was two things I think suck on MeWe. One, you can't see anything unless you're a member. I don't like that as a personality. I think as an individual, that's really cool. Um, but as a personality, I wish we had a landing page. Like when, when you clicked on my link for MeWe, and by the way, links to all my stuff are in the notes of this video, uh, I wish you saw my page and my activity. And if you want to, if maybe we wanted to say, well, we protect privacy, so that's something that's, that's private by default, but there was an option to turn it on and make it public, even if people couldn't interact, they couldn't go anywhere else, they could just see what you're doing, I think that would be awesome, and it would get more people to sign up. Um, MeWe respects your privacy. I've experienced no censorship. I'm telling you that if you subscribe to MeWe, or if you, you join MeWe, and you follow me, you will see what I post, and I will see what you post, unless I decide I don't want to see what you post. I do have people who follow me. I don't mind that on MeWe, but the stuff they post is stuff that I really find annoying. Uh, I'll just leave it at that. Some of it's um, borderline porno. Uh, that's not my thing, guys. If you want to look at butts all day long, that's great. Uh, I appreciate nice-looking butts, but I don't need to see them all day long in my feed. So like those people, what's really cool is when somebody is, is connected to you on MeWe, You can actually go to their profile and say, let this person see my stuff, but I don't want to see theirs anymore. You get a lot of control. We have a group on MeWe. It's very active. There's uh, messaging on MeWe, et cetera. It's been great. And I now have 
more followers on MeWe in about a year of actually working it than I have on Facebook after, what, 13 years? So it's more powerful. It's also, of all the social media sites that I'm using, we're calling alternatives today, the one that I get the most amount of people following me, connecting with me, engaging with me, and becoming listeners of my podcast who didn't know who I was before they found me on MeWe. So it's been my best funnel of new traffic to the podcast. I, I, I definitely think it will take some time. And one of the things I really suggest you do if you join MeWe and you're part of the TSP audience When you do, also join our survival podcast group, join our cryptocurrency group, join all the groups that we have, and then go find people in those groups and start sending some friend requests because you're probably, this is the downside compared to Facebook, like your mom, your uncle, your aunt, your cousin, your nephew's former roommate, whatever, probably itting on MeWe. As big as it is, it's not anywhere near as big as Facebook. Like, literally, I would say 8 out of 10 people have a, a, a profile on Facebook, and that's what makes it so engaging to people. But unlike Facebook, MeWe is not using algorithms to trigger you with emotional responses. Facebook is literally showing you the things that they know will enrage you. They are literally encouraging fighting. Somebody said something like this on MeWe. MeWe makes me like people I never knew. And Facebook makes me hate people I used to like. Something to that effect. And it's, it's pretty spot on. MeWe is the best alternative media platform if you like the Facebook experience, if you like groups, if you like pages, if you want to promote your brand. What it lacks is not functionality at all. Anybody that says the UI sucks on MeWe... You just don't want it to be good because it's great. There's, you have to have an IQ of like 37 if you can use the UI on Facebook and not pull it off on MeWe. I, I really don't, I don't get that. So, again, not having a public-facing page is a little annoying as a personality. Um, now, Float. I want to like Float more than I do. I'm about to have Kingsley Edwards, co-founder of Float, on the show as soon as possible. I just got his guest app in today. I've been on him for like two weeks. Hey, dude, I want to get on the show. They're about to do a token launch. I think that's going to be a real boost to them, so much like Odyssey has its own token, um, Float will. I don't know yet what it's going to be based on. I really hope it's not an ERC-20 token. The gas fees on that is just killing people. I know Ethereum says they're going to fix it, but... I don't know. Um, what I don't really dig about Float is I have not had the success on Float I've had in other platforms. And I don't know if it's something that I'm doing. I don't know if it's the fact that Float doesn't have an app. So, like, MeWe is not only where I get the best results, it's also where I'm most active because I have an app. And due to the fact that I have an app, it's on my mobile device. So when I'm out and I see something cool in my backyard that has nothing to do with any of the stuff we normally talk about on the show like just cool picture of my chickens or whatever, I am very likely to take a picture and immediately post it to MeWe. And so I'm more active there, so I think that helps. Now, the other side of this, though, is uh, Float and Gab. Generally, I grab that on my computer and move it over there, so the th same stuff ends, ends up there eventually. What I found, though, is like I'll put a picture and a little caption on, on MeWe, and it'll get like 50, you know, 50 likes or thumbs up or laughs or whatever people click. It'll get like five shares. People will make, you know, there'll be a dozen comments in it. I'll comment back. People will respond to me. I'll put the same thing on Float. And I do have a lot less followers on Float. I probably have 15% of the followers on Float that I do on uh, MeWe. But, you know, I'll put something up and it'll get like two likes. 
no shares, no comments. And I'm talking the same thing in both places. Now, I think I have a lot of people that follow me on both, and if they've engaged on one, maybe they don't engage on the other. I want to work harder to build my, my float following up. I love what they're doing. Uh, they're not 100% blockchain-based yet, but they're moving in that direction from my understanding. They are 100% committed to free speech. Some of the coolest people that I've met online I've met on Float, and I will keep working it, but I've just not found it to build the momentum as quickly. And it's, it, given that like MeWe is the alternative to Facebook, I would say Float is the alternative to Twitter. And I, I think I just prefer the kind of community aspects of a site like a MeWe where you have groups and you can categorize things and I can see in my feed all my contact stuff or all my group stuff or all the pages I follow. And I can sort between that to like this just giant stream that a Twitter-like service like Float is. Um, so maybe that's part of it. But I, I, I really like what they're doing. I would recommend that anybody who's building a brand online get on Float as well. And I think they are going to blow up. What I see coming out of things like FloatFest and the real-world community, that's creating what I see with them doing in the crypto space. It's why I'm having Kingsley on. I think that like Float is the next big thing in this space, and so I'm glad I'm there. And that's at flote.app, and again, all my links are here. I'm going to go a little bit faster through the rest of these. Gab, I want to like Gab more than I do. It's kind of like it's a lot like MeWe or Facebook. Um, there's a lot of Q-tards there, and I'm sorry, but if you are a QAnon type, I call you a Q-tard. I think it is the most ridiculous thing in the world. It's not that everything that comes out of there is fake, but a lot of it is just fake-ass bullshit. And so there's a ton of that. Um, so that's there, it, it, is, it, is, it is Trump country, which in, in of itself I don't mind. I know a lot of people that are very fond of Trump, and we get along great. Um, but it's like it's just all that all the time, it seems like. And I've only got like about a thousand followers there. I get very limited engagement. Again, I put something on MeWe, I get huge engagement. I put something on Gab, I get very minimal engagement. Um, the only way I get good engagement on Gab is I put something up that is perceived as being pro-Republican and pro-Trump because, well, maybe it is. Uh, then I'll get some. But if I really want to really want to get engagement on Gab, I put something that's like anti-Orange Man, and then they go nuts, right? But... Uh, Overall, I like Gab's approach to things, and I think some good things are going to come out of Gab. It hasn't done much for me. I don't get hardly any traffic, and I get very poor engagement there. Um, I don't push it or promote it, and I also just found out that on my Get Social page on the website, my link to my Gab profile was messed up. So that might have hurt that as well. Maybe I'm not pushing people there uh, as much. Telegram. I have a group and a channel. I recommend any brand do the same. Telegram's like a text messaging service uh, that respects your privacy and your rights far more so than, uh, you know, Apple or Google or something like that. Um, not that they're perfect by any means. There are people who have had channels shut down and stuff over free speech issues. But we've been left alone, and we talk about all the shit that we get shut down for on Facebook all the time. And no one's ever bothered us. Um, I'm part of many Telegram groups. I find it a great way to stay in touch with crypto projects and things like that. They all have Telegram groups. Uh, sometimes uh, Telegram groups are too chatty and too much bullshit and too much nonsense and too much adult adolescence. So some of the projects that I follow, I follow their channel, not their group. That means I see updates only from the company. This is exactly what I've done. We don't have juvenile delinquents in the TSP group, but some people don't really want like this constant string of conversation going on. But all of my items of the day, my podcasts, my Miyagi mornings, all that stuff gets put out on the channel. 
and then I have it linked so that it's anything that goes on my channel also goes to the group. That way I'm able to get dual engagement. In fact, I'll get to Discord in a second, but it's actually set up so when I post something to my blog, our Discord server grabs it and posts it onto our Discord, and the Discord server then communicates with Telegram that puts it in the channel, and then that puts it in the group. So I don't do anything except make the post, and all that technology works together because I have an awesome dude that does stuff for like that, that for me named Tom, who's just, I couldn't do what I'm doing today without him. He's just an awesome, awesome tech guy to have working with me. I'm blessed to have him. But the Telegram channel and, and group combined have been the number one source of, let's say, alternative media traffic to the website. I get the best uh, engagement And not in communication back to me, but rather engagement that people go to the website. But I think it's because people use it to be notified. And what it's done for me with my affiliate marketing for Amazon products, when I put up a review, it goes immediately out to that channel and group. This has made people value it because sometimes, in fact, I'd say maybe once every two weeks, I find some kind of kick-ass deal in one of the products that I've previously reviewed or a new product that I'm reviewing. And it'll be some sort of daily deal or lightning deal or something like that. And a lot of times when the podcast goes out later in the day, the person who sees that or hears that in the podcast or gets the email about the podcast and like, oh, okay, here's the deal of the day. The deal of the day is expired or often due to the power of TSP marketing, if there was you know 50 or 60 of them in stock, they're sold out. And, I mean, sometimes this is things like recently we had a DeWalt tool set that I've recommended for a long time that was on sale for over $100 off. And if you like DeWalt and you kind of wanted to step into this level of, like, hiring DeWalt tools, it was, you know, that was like 33% off. And I think we sold something like 65 of them in about two hours, and there were a bunch of people going, I can't get it, I can't get it, it's sold out. So that's worked out, and it's provided value to my audience. So I love Telegram, and I recommend if you're a brand, you're on there, and if you just want to communicate with your friends and all, it's a better way to do things, and it's a great way to follow companies. What I don't like about Twitter and Facebook is you follow someone because you want their content, and then you don't see it. Sometimes it's because they're shadow banned, but a lot of times it's just algorithms. I want to see... The people I follow. When when Pirate Chain or Algorand puts out an announcement, I want to know what the hell it is. I don't want Mark Zuckercock deciding, you don't need to see this, or Jack Dorsey deciding, you don't need to see this. I want to see it. With Telegram and MeWe specifically, everybody I follow, I pretty much stay in touch with. And that's the real value to me here. Actually connecting with the people you've actually connected with. So please use these services. Uh, our Discord, I am very inactive on Discord, but my community loves Discord. We have some very dedicated people. They're deeply communicating with each other, and they set it up for me. They did all the work, and I'm like, well, I'll promote it. Um, I do occasionally pop into Discord. It's kind of cool. But I think when you really have built successful communities... That's when you put up a platform and your people use it whether you're there or not. A lot of my groups on MeWe are like that. I get them up, I got them running, the cryptocurrency group, the TSP group, etc. I pop in time to time, but unless I see it pop up in my main feed, I generally don't do much there. 
My community uses it to communicate with each other. And that's something, don't miss the value of that in your social media work. It's not all about you and traffic to your site and engagement with you. Do your people talk to each other and get a good experience because of what you've done? That is really important. So definitely, I've loved Discord and Telegram. Parler, I'll be blunt. Before Parler got shut down by Apple, Gulag, and freaking Amazon Web Services, I was loving Parler. I was kicking ass on Parler. I had about 6,000 or 7,000 followers, and I was getting like 10 times the engagement I was getting with, you know, five times the number of followers on Twitter. It was great. And it just was like somebody let the air out of that balloon when it, when it, when it was taken down. And now often I cannot even get to Parler on my computer. I don't know why. It doesn't make any sense. I was like, well, maybe my ISP is blocking them because, you know, Spectrum, you're the, you know, they're kind of wokeism and whatever. Um, no, because when I'm on my mobile device, you know, using the same browsers, so it's not that it's, you know, Brave's not going to block it. It's not Brave. It's not Firefox. It's not Safari because I can reach it from all the browsers on my mobile device when my mobile device is actively attached to my wireless router. So it's on the same network. So I, I don't know why that happens, and that's made me less likely to get back involved. But when they brought it back up, I started posting to it again, and my engagement, and I think what happened is most of my people that were engaging with me and following there, um, just not having it for a couple months, it just died. Parler has made a, a deal with the devil with Apple, and there's certain things they want filtered. So if you use uh, Android, Parler's back, and you see everything. If you're using the Apple app, you will find that some things you don't see. Uh, maybe. I don't really mess with Parlor anymore. I probably should give it another run. I should probably throw the app back on, etc. But I just... I look at these other platforms like MeWe and Float and Telegram, uh, even Gab, Discord, and I just think that everybody said Parler was an echo chamber. It was nothing but, you know, Fox News and uh, Epic Times and, and all that. You know, Sean Hannity and, and Tucker Carlson and everything. It was starting to really become a good kind of town square. Like, that was the core that built it. But it was, get, you know, I was seeing content from knife makers and gardeners. And, like, it was really beginning to go. And then these bastards c collaborated with all the other bastards, right? And they killed it and when it came back now it now it is the echo chamber everybody said it was so i don't know maybe i'll give it another try but i just think that like my efforts would be better served you know since float and parlor are very similar with float and that's what i that's what i'm probably going to do so um follow me on any of these if you want to and but my bigger reason for doing this today and giving you this overview is all of you guys out there are content creators you're building brands etc do not Fail to use these platforms because I can tell you for a fact you can build a massive presence. My my TSP group on Facebook has a hundred and ten thousand subscribers to the, the to, not the group the uh, whatever it is the the page the TSP page a hundred and ten thousand people on Facebook follow TSP which I don't post to anymore. But when I did, I was down to getting less than a thousand views with a hundred and ten thousand people. Subscribe. If you subscribe to it, that meant you wanted to see it. But Mark Zuckerberg decided you didn't need to. So that's why I've done what I've done. Yes, I might get less, but the people that want to see me do, and the engagement's better.
Take care, guys. I will be back next week with another group of Miyagi Mornings. And remember, the Miyagi Mornings recap episode comes out every Friday in the podcast feed. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Miyagi Morning Recap. Remember, I do Miyagi Mornings to create short and shareable content for your friends and family who may not be up to listening to an entire podcast. Each of these segments from today's show is only five to eight minutes long and can be shared as both YouTube or Odyssey videos. Links to the video files for each segment are in today's show notes. If you want to submit a question for Miyagi Mornings, just email jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com with Miyagi Mornings in the subject line. All subjects other than politics are welcome for this special series. And please remember, you can always support the Survival Podcast by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com or becoming a member of the Members Support Brigade.